The scripture this morning comes from Luke 24, verses 44 through 53. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised, so that here in the city, until you have been clothed with power from on high. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him, and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they continually, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. O Christ, who sits at the right hand of God, I speak and we hear the words of this sermon in the interval between the dawning of the new order of life and our period in which the temporary and the material has not yet been transformed into the spiritual. In this interval, in this meantime, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you. And may they point to this new order of life and its victory to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. I've got to adjust my pulpit here. I'm sorry. (laughs) If not, I'm going to be uncomfortable the whole service. It's been so long since I've had to adjust it, I've forgotten how. Ah, here it is. (laughs) You know, it's like those seats in a car. You never know, you know, where to reach to move them up. So it was the 1964 World Series between the St. Louis Cardinals and the New York Yankees that got me hooked on baseball. On Saturday, October 10th, our whole family happened to go shopping for what was called in those days a second car. Not even the prospect of climbing in and out of clean, used cars to try out their back seats could pry my nine-year-old self away from my seat in the yellow Mercury station wagon, which was our first car that was parked in the dealer's parking lot, listening to Cardinal announcer Harry Carey call Game 3 from Yankee Stadium with the series tied one game apiece. In the bottom of the ninth inning, Yankee slugger Mickey Mantle told Elston Howard not to bother going out to the on-deck circle for the next at-bat, for Mantle said that he was going to hit a home run and win the game. Within minutes... Mantle hit the first pitch from knuckleballer Barney Schultz into the right field seats, giving the Yankees, who were not then my team, a two-to-one victory and a two-to-one lead in the series. About the time the game ended, my parents emerged with the keys 
to a two-year-old beige Ford Falcon, which had neither a radio nor air conditioning, (laughs) into whose back seat I slid dejectedly. But five days later, my sorrow turned into joy when the Cardinals won the seventh game of that famous series. Years later, when I went to seminary in New York, my allegiance switched to the then Billy Martin, Reggie Jackson, Thurman Munson-led Yankees, an allegiance that has stayed with me ever since, providing me instant alienation from most members of the church that I have served. (laughs) That allegiance has been eclipsed only in recent years by a smidgen when the Nats arrived in D.C. a few months after I moved to Alexandria. With baseball being a part of my blood, leading me to build this sermon around it, even on Mother's Day, (laughs) this past Wednesday night, when leaving a committee meeting, one of our members mentioned that he has a part-time job performing random tests on Major League players before games at Nat Stadium. I couldn't let that information pass without following him into the church parking lot and excising every detail that I could. Now, as many of you know, I have a keen interest and deep respect for the work that many of you do in campaigns and polling and lobbying and journalism and think tanks and teaching and defense and foreign policy and intelligence and service on the Hill or in the executive branch. But Wednesday night, none of this seemed as interesting to me as the chance to talk to someone who actually tests players before major league games. As I completed my inquisition of him and released him to his car and began walking home myself, I noticed the lighted sign on the church marquee reminding me that I was preaching this Sunday on the Ascension. The phrase from the Apostles' Creed we recite every week, He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I began at that point to plot how I could work the baseball story I had just heard (laughs) into the sermon I was planning to preach. So here goes. Growing up as a child in the Presbyterian Church and even well into the first decade or so of my ministry, the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven were joined as one event in my mind. After all, we say them one after another. On the third day, he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Thus, For most of those years, I would preach a sermon on Easter about the hope and promise that the resurrection holds for us and our world. The pews were usually filled. Spring was in the air, except when I was in Iowa. Lilies were in bloom. Baseball had already started or was soon to start. Everyone was upbeat on Easter. But on that and subsequent Sundays... I never really got to the ascension. In fact, just this week I was reminded that the ascension only occurs or is is described in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which are by the same author. 
I also realize that in Luke, there is a significant time lapse, 40 days, a not unbiblical number, between the time Christ is raised from the dead and the time he ascends into heaven. If we combine all four Gospels, we conclude that during these 40 days, the risen Christ gives the Great Commission to his disciples in Matthew, appears to two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke, shows disciples his hands and his side in John, and then eats with them by the Sea of Tiberias. Piecing all of this together, it becomes clear that the ascension is an event separate from the resurrection of Christ, but it is also an event that gets easily lost in the rites of spring. But the sermon title on the marquee read, Ascension, with a question mark. What does the ascension mean? As I thought about it this week, my initial thought was that the ascension, that in the ascension, Christ departs this world so that we may live fully in it on his behalf. In this way of thinking, Christ came and lived among us, teaching and preaching and healing. After his death, he was raised and appeared to his disciples for 40 days. Then just as Elisha picked up the mantle of Elijah, when Elijah ascended in a whirlwind to heaven, we fully and freely pick up Christ's mantle of responsibility for the world from which he ascends into heaven. It was thus going to be a sermon on the tremendous gifts of freedom and responsibility for the world that Christ entrusts to us. When I returned to my former teacher and friend, Christopher Morse, and reread some of what he had written on the Ascension a few years ago, I went deeper. Morse writes that while ascended, Christ now resides in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. But that does not mean that Christ is absent from the affairs of the earth. Christ has not retired from matters of state and nation, family relationships, economics, politics, business, or law. Christ is not on sabbatical, on vacation, on study leave, on sick or family leave. Rather, after the ascension, says Morse, and this is, this is a great sentence, Christ's base of operation has returned to heaven, but his field of operation remains on earth. In fact, Christ operates on earth with us and through us, or as Whitney often says in her prayers, when and where necessary, in spite of us. But all in the midst of the kingdoms of self and family, of culture, community, and church, of vocation, of governments of nation, government of nation and nations, indeed, of civilization itself. Christ has ascended to rule all these kingdoms with his power, power which is greater than the power within these sometimes threatening and sometimes enriching kingdoms, these kingdoms in which we live and move and have our being. 
The writer of Ephesians describes the scope of the ascended Christ's power far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Ascension is a vindication of the will and way of Jesus Christ in relation to all existing power structures in and under which we live. Ascension serves as a defiance of any claim that they make to be more powerful than he is. Ascension is not just Christ defying gravity in some visual, dramatically appealing way. Ascension is not just an event in the sky like a solar eclipse or northern lights that we might be drawn to watch on a summer night. Ascension is not just Christ rising into thin air or levitating above the earth. Ascension fulfills in Christ the promise of Isaiah so often associated with his birth and sung so well in Handel's Messiah. Authority rests upon his shoulders. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. This is the meaning of the ascension. Now back to baseball. (laughs) As many of you know, our national pastime experienced significant labor and management disputes in the early 1990s. Strike-shortened seasons of 1994 and 95 left fans without a World Series in the fall of 1994. After the strike settled, revival came to the national pastime through the slugfests of 1998 through 2001, when Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa and Barry Bonds took turns soaring past Roger Maris's record of 61 home runs in a single season, a record that stood for 37 years. Yet the integrity of the revival of baseball was soon called into question with the discovery that those home run surges were fueled by performance-enhancing drugs. Hence, today's drug testing program in which our member plays a part every time he goes to Nat Stadium to test before a game. Think about this. Can you imagine the intensity and degree of negotiation that was involved in the early 2000s to put this drug testing program into such a major industry as Major League Baseball? Some of you may have been involved in it. There were owners, players, lawyers and agents, congressional committees, sponsors and media companies, Companies that sell jerseys and hats and balls and bats and memorabilia authorized by baseball. Companies that sell hot dogs and pretzels and beer and soft drinks at games. Ushers and parking lot attendants and security guards who make their living working these games. Cities that receive tax revenue from ticket sales and concessions. Developers who put up condos and offices, restaurants and entertainment venues near major league stadiums. All of these were affected 
by the decline and renewal of baseball. All had a stake in the negotiations around the testing and regulation of performance-enhancing drugs. Like nearly everything else that touches our lives or invites us to give our time and energy, Major League Baseball is a kingdom of this world. Just like law, medicine, education, government, business, the arts, entertainment. All are kingdoms of this world. In a way, the ascension of Christ says none of these kingdoms matter at all. Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, rendering relative or irrelevant all of the kingdoms in which we live and for which we extend our energy and labor. And when we are honest, part of us even wants the ascended Christ to render all of these kingdoms irrelevant. But in another way, the ascension of Christ says that all of these kingdoms do matter. Because ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of God, Jesus Christ is still involved in the world for which he was born, suffered, and died. Though he is transcendent from us and our kingdom, he remains present still to us and with us, to our kingdoms and with our kingdoms. He is with us through his spirit, more powerful, believe it or not, than these kingdoms in which we live and work. Christ is neither defined by them nor contained within them. But he stands with us as we leave, live in them, as we seek to bear witness to his grace and his power and his justice, which we believe are greater than all of the kingdoms of the world. With Christopher Morse, we refuse to believe that the transcendence of Jesus Christ does not have anything to do with the actual governance in all of its form of our earthly power arrangements and our earthly authorities. So whether we test baseball players or nuclear weapons, whether we live in families that are simple and peaceful for the moment or always seeming to be fractious and complex, whether we work in causes or corporations, politics or preschool, the Christ who was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven has triumphed over all we do and yet stands with us as we stand with him in these earthly kingdoms that await their transformation into his kingdom. All authority rests on his shoulders. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and it is he, he, not these kingdoms, but he who will reign forever. Therefore, when the umpire calls out, 
play ball. The game begins. And we're in it. Amen.